Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today's topic is property division factors in divorce. In dividing property during a divorce, Massachusetts is one of many states known as an equitable distribution state. What does that mean exactly, and how does the law determine how property should be divided in a divorce. We have to help us sort all this out and explain what happens in this situation. Tim Brockler, a family law attorney at the firm of Myrick O'Connell in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Tim, thanks so much for joining us again here on the On Air Show. Thank you very much for having me again, Howard. Sure. So the first question I'd have, Tim, is what is the starting point for understanding how property is divided in a divorce? And what does the term equitable distribution mean? Property division uh, can be one of the most impactful parts of a divorce, and particularly in longer marriages where there are, are a lot of assets that people might have. This can have pretty big ramifications on people for the rest of their lives. And unlike other aspects of a divorce like support, child-related issues, property division uh, at the time of divorce is final and can't be revisited. So it's something that's very important uh, that it be done in a fair manner. And when we talk about property division, it's also important to understand that we're not just talking about property that the couple acquired together during their marriage. Our laws uh, really can subject all property of either spouse whenever and however acquired to division. And that's where we, we really start to understand what the term equitable distribution actually means. So any property interest that either spouse has can be considered in an equitable distribution state like Massachusetts and and most others. And you contrast that with a few states which are considered community property states where, with with very few exceptions, uh, will only divide a divorcing couple's property that they actually acquired together during the marriage. And the other thing to realize about the term equitable distribution is that it doesn't necessarily mean 50-50. Um, And again, making the community property state distinction where property acquired during the marriage is generally going to be divided equally in those states. In our equitable distribution states, that word equitable doesn't necessarily mean equal. And so our our specific property division statute here in Massachusetts is Mass General Laws Chapter 208, Section 34. And that statute provides for the equitable distribution of property on divorce by considering all property of both spouses. And how you get to what is equitable is not black and white. And instead, what the statute does is it lays out Um, 16 specific factors that have to be considered and weighed in order to arrive at what's equitable. And and in the divorce practice, those are commonly referred to as the Section 34 factors with reference to the statute. So, Tim, are all 16 factors that you speak about in the property division statute always examined in a given divorce? 14 of the 16 factors that uh, the property division statute lists are considered mandatory. And so the court has to consider those in every single divorce. Um, Two of the factors are technically considered uh, discretionary factors that the court may consider. Those two factors are 
what were the contributions of each party to the acquisition and the preservation of their assets. So in other words, what are the assets of the parties? Um, the court would consider if the assets were owned prior to the marriage and, and who brought the assets into the marriage. And then during the marriage, who contributed financially in terms of acquiring acquiring the assets. And that said, you know, you're not going to necessarily penalize someone who earned less during a marriage if both were contributing. Um, so that's one discretionary factor. And then the other discretionary factor is contribution of each party to the family as a homemaker. So who took care of the kids, who cooked dinner, who did the laundry, things like that. And and the reality is, though, that these factors, they're really only discretionary in name only. And I would say that a court is almost always going to consider these two factors in any case. And, and as a practitioner, I find that these contribution factors can often be pretty important. And, and they are definitely important factors stressed by parties in a the divorce. There's something about a divorce that makes everyone want to talk about how much they contributed to the marriage. Uh, and so, so really, though, what the factors are meant to do is, is to provide a mechanism for all of the varied circumstances of a given marriage to be given consideration when deciding how to divide property. And they are there to provide guidelines for the court. And they're also a way for practitioners to argue the case for their client. And so building on the, the statute, Section 34, we then also have a history of case law that interprets those factors in various cases. And so that further helps the courts and practitioners in considering how to uh, weigh each of the factors and, and consider each of the factors in property division. Now, diving into the factors, Tim, is there one factor considered the most important? Th that will definitely vary by case, but often the most important factor, or at least the starting point, would be the length of the marriage. In very short marriages, which I would say like less than five years, um, I, I kind of call these the pick up your marbles and go home marriages. In short marriages, you find that people will leave with what they came in with, and that sometimes is going to even include appreciation on those assets that, that may have accumulated during the marriage. Um, and perhaps you might just be dividing what was accumulated together, although not necessarily equally. As you get to a lengthier marriage, such as between five and 15 years, then you're going to start to see more of a equal division of what was accumulated during the marriage. And um, you might see a division of appreciation on, that, on assets that were brought in to the marriage by either spouse. And, and as you get into the longer marriages, the distinction of what uh, was brought into the marriage by each spouse sort of loses its importance. And then when you get to longer marriages, such as 20 years plus, what you find there is a pretty strong presumption that all of the property a couple has, really regardless of, of where it came from, is going to be divided 50-50. And it, it can be pretty hard to move that needle one way or the other. Um, if, if a couple has children, that tends to make shorter marriages be treated more like longer marriages in the eyes of the court. There can also be a lot of dispute about what the length of the marriage is when you consider that it's not just the the date from marriage to divorce, so not just the technical length of the marriage, but what the court really looks at with this factor is what was the length of the partnership of this couple in a given case. 
almost a business-like approach to it. And so this means that if a married couple lived together and were really living as an economic unit for a number of years before they got married, that could make a short technical marriage viewed at as, as a longer marriage under the statute. And then on the flip side, you might have a couple who separates for decades before actually getting divorced. And so there you'd be potentially looking at the marital partnership ending and being much shorter and, and considered much shorter in the eyes of the court uh, than, than the technical marriage is. So really how long the, the marital partnership is definitely probably the most important factor and, and, and the starting point for considering all of the other factors. Tim, what other factors tend to be given more weight? So, so again, what, what factors are given more weight is going to depend on the case. But, but generally, I, I would say that there's a group of factors that tends to be pretty important, and it involves the factors that really get to um, each party's ability to uh, leave the divorce and generate income in the future, support him or herself by acquiring income and assets in the future. And if there's a big enough disparity in these abilities of the party, that may justify a property division in favor of the less advantaged uh, spouse, so to speak. And, and, and again, this goes back to the point that because property di division is final and can't be revisited, the law tries to really ensure that with the property division, a divorcing spouse isn't going to be left destitute while the other person is is completely comfortable. And, and in these factors, and, and they're very much interrelated, one example is a party's amount and sources of income. And so here the court's going to look not just at earned income of a party, but this could be income from investments or trust interests or uh, rental income, really any income source that a party has at the time of divorce is going to be relevant. And then specifically focusing on earned income, other factors that the court is going to look at includes the occupation of the parties, the vocational skills of the parties, and the employability of the parties. And essentially what we're going to look at here is the party's work history. We're going to consider what their prospects are for being able to earn income going forward. And so if you have a spouse who, uh, for instance, deferred a career to stay home for uh, and, and care for the kids, that's going to be considered. And you don't expect that spouse to suddenly jump into the workforce. If you have someone with much greater skills and an ability in terms of job prospects, that could be something that impacts property division in favor of the other spouse. If someone's underemployed in a field that isn't in line with their skills and experience, or if they're unemployed, um, let's say voluntarily, then, then these factors are designed to allow the court to consider what the party could be earning so that they're not unfairly assigning perhaps more property than is appropriate to someone claiming that their earning potential is limited for some reason. In cases where alimony is awarded, that interplays with the property division as well. And so the court's going to consider the amount and the duration of that alimony when they think about property division. And then kind of lastly on this point, when we talk about the examination of of each spouse's ability to acquire income and assets in the future. Sometimes the potential future inheritance is something that can be given weight as well when you're doing the current property. And you, you'd find this 
sort of examined more closely in a longer marriage where you could fairly say that a spouse receiving an inheritance is somewhat imminent. Let's say their parents are in their late 80s or 90s. Future inheritance potential can really impact um, how the court might divide current property uh, between the spouses. Tim, would you mind going through with us the remaining factors and how they might come into consideration in a divorce? Uh, yeah, and again, um, I'll, I'll, I'll just say all of the factors um, in, interplay with one another quite significantly. So one example is the age of the parties, and that's uh, important as it relates to things like employment and the opportunity of spouses to earn income and acquire assets in the future. And the way to think about that is property division is much more critical for, say, a 60-year-old who's been a homemaker for 30 years and has little ability to acquire assets or earn income in the future, whereas someone in their 20s or 30s, they're going to have time to continue to work, and thus they're not dependent on what property they necessarily received now as part of the divorce. So the age of the parties can really have an impact. The liability abilities and needs of a party and the needs of any dependent children are also considered. If a party has significant liabilities or needs, that can sometimes justify a particular property division. The court might also consider the source of the liabilities and they might be less inclined to skew the property division because of liabilities if there was some fault of a party in incurring them. And then when we think about the needs of children, this can also impact property division. Uh, this can impact who keeps the marital home and where the children might primarily live. Or sometimes a court might even postpone parties selling a home as part of a divorce until the children have graduated from high school, for instance, because they want to sort of prevent uprooting kids. The health of the parties, that can be another factor. And again, this ties into other factors like employability and the needs of the party. And if someone has major health issues that are going to have an impact on their ability to work or they've got increased needs because of that, that can shift the property division a bit. The marital lifestyle, that's another factor the court looks at, particularly in long marriages. The court's going to look at what was the party's lifestyle during the marriage. Was this a family who had a modest house and took one vacation a year, or was this a family with multiple houses who sent their kids to private schools and belonged to country clubs? And ideally, the court tries to fashion a property division award that will allow both spouses to continue to enjoy the lifestyle that they enjoyed during the marriage. In, in reality, though, that's often difficult to do when you're dividing a marital pot into two pieces. But the idea here is that you don't want one spouse having a dramatically lower lifestyle simply because of the divorce. And again, you know, this would be a factor that's more weighted in a longer marriage. And then lastly, conduct of the spouses uh, during the marriage is something that the courts technically must consider uh, in all divorce cases as well. We're talking with Tim Brockler from the law firm of Myrick O'Connell on the many factors that are considered in dividing up marital property in divorce cases. And uh, Tim, thank you for going through all of those many factors. And you just uh, hinted at I think a very big question that a lot of people have, how does a spouse's conduct impact property division at all? 
Yes, I saved the most interesting one for last. Um, <laughs> yep. this, this is really the factor where spouses uh, get the most emotionally entangled. You know, he was a bad spouse or she had an affair. Really, though, the reality is it's the more unusual case where conduct is factored in, in a way that's going to skew the property division. And I think in large part, it comes down to the fact that we now have no-fault divorce in Massachusetts, which we've had since the 1970s, where we really don't necessarily care whose fault it was or, or what the reason is. There's simply just been a breakdown of the marriage and the couple wants of a di divorce. And then also the courts themselves are so busy and so backlogged. You know, you can just imagine having to toil through on each case all of the reasons each person feels that they were a better spouse than the one they're divorcing, why that just would sort of turn into a nightmare and, and really not be possible. So adultery, that's a common one that clients always want to emphasize and as a reason why one of them should be awarded more property. But really, adultery is almost never going to have an effect on property division. There are certain aspects of conduct that can come into play. Sometimes if there's abuse in a marriage, that can actually impact and in way on property division, particularly if it's severe. There are cases out there that indicate that. But I'd say where conduct most often comes into play is, is only if the conduct has an economic impact. And for instance, I had a case years ago where the husband had gambled away an enormous amount of money oh, and, and really wrecked the family financially. And, and in that case, his conduct was a big reason why my client, the wife, um, received a much greater share of the property when they actually divorced. If a spouse transfers assets in anticipation of a divorce to a third party or a parent or something like that, that could be the type of conduct that could impact a property division award. So again, if the conduct's got an economic impact, that's where you're going to see that factor looked at the most. And again, what I hope is has been clear from all of this is that, that there really isn't any black and white when it comes to property division. And the facts and the circumstances of every single marriage are unique. And that's what these factors in the property division statute are designed to examine and weighing each of those in the way that they should be weighed in order to come up with what's hopefully going to be a fair outcome for, for each particular divorcing couple. This has been a fascinating conversation, I have to say. Tim Brockler, attorney with Myrick O'Connell, thank you so much for being with us on On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Thank you, Howard. My pleasure. If folks want to contact you, how can they contact you? I can be reached by telephone at uh, 617-391-2164, uh, or email is also great, which uh, is T-D-R-A-U-G-H-L-E-R, and that's at myrickoconnell.com. Thanks, Tim. I'm Howard Kaplan. On behalf of Myrick O'Connell and attorney Tim Brockler, Thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Music.